On this special Q&A episode of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll hear me answer questions from the Tennis Files audience on second serve consistency, doubles movement, pressure drills, and more. Enjoy. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Hey there, it's Mirban. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. And today, I'm looking forward to answering your questions that you've submitted to me about tennis. Obviously, this is a tennis podcast after all. And so I have for you, let me see how many, let's uh, about 10, nope, sorry, nine questions on a variety of different aspects of the game that I hope will be very helpful to you in addition to those who submitted the questions. So the first one uh, is actually by an anonymous person. We've got seven named people and two anonymous people. Uh, So this is a 4-0 anonymous player. And the comments last question is, I struggle with consistency on my serve. When it's good, I win a lot of free points and the rest of my game falls nicely into place. But when it's bad, I feel like giving up altogether. Either I can't get the toss right or I continually hit long or into the net and I can't even find a second serve. And welcome to the club. Uh, Most people have struggled through this sort of situation. And so, I mean, the first thing that stood out to me was your comment about the toss and it is a very very important aspect of the serve Uh, you know if you're not able to throw up consistent tosses and I shouldn't even say the word throw uh, if you don't have a consistent toss then you're not going to be able to uh, get much rhythm on your serve and you know a lot of cases your mechanics are going to change especially when you're chasing wayward tosses so I've got a few tips for the toss in particular uh, mostly mistakes, actually. So the first one is a lot of people will flick their wrist when they're tossing the ball up, but instead you should think about the toss as lifting the ball up. And I really like this analogy, if you will. Uh, I can't remember who said it, but this person said to pretend like you're placing an item on a shelf. And I really like that because it just kind of uh, really accentuates uh, how controlled of a manner and you know, how there is not really like any sort of, you know, throwing or quick movement on the toss. So imagine that you're placing that tennis ball on a shelf and you're going to find yourself slowing down your arm and having it be more controlled and then just opening up your fingers instead of flicking the wrist. And so the second uh, tip here on the toss is to keep your arm relatively straight. It doesn't have to be super straight like you feel like if somebody hits your arm, it's going to break. But keep it pretty straight because the more bent that your arm is, the more likely, again, that you're going to have a jerky uh, toss and that you're going to flick your wrist up. And also, as I kind of mentioned, you want to slow down your tossing arm. In a lot of cases, we rush the toss and then that contributes to uh, too high of a toss and a misplaced toss. 
And then you also do want to understand where to toss based on your serve. So for most of us, it really does help if we vary the toss a bit. I know I talked about consistency on the toss, but you want to consistently place the toss according to the serve you're going to hit. So if you want to hit a flat serve, you know, that's more in the one o'clock region. If you if you want to hit a, um, a kick serve, it's more in the you know, 10 to 11 o'clock region and so forth. Uh, advanced players can toss the ball in the same spot for all their serves like Pete Sampras does, um, but or did, I guess. But for, again, you know, most of us can just have uh, a couple different spots that we consistently toss to and then hit those serves well. So that's some advice for the toss, Mr. or Mr. or whoever anonymous. And then in terms of your, the rest of your serve, I mean, or, Obviously, it would be ideal if I could see a, your serve on video to provide an assessment. But in general, you know, you mentioned hitting long. And in that case, I would work on adding spin to, the, to my serve, to your serve. Uh, if you're hitting it into the net, you do want to add height. Do, you know, I want to ask, you know, do you have any spin on your serve at all? Because that obviously can help control some of these, uh, these important variables in terms of length and uh, height. and I'm curious as well how your second serve is. Do you, do you use the same motion as you do for your first serve or do you do what a lot of players do, which is like just do a little shortened tap in basically of your second serve? And so, of course, you know, your second serve motion should essentially be the same as the first serve, uh, except for where you're contacting the ball and your toss, as we just talked about. And uh, one thing that can help and that has helped me a lot with my second serve is to prevent myself from over-rotating because when you want to produce spin, uh, particularly a kick serve or top spin, if we open up too early, then we're not going to be able to produce that, uh, that spin. So you do want to make sure you're not rotating too quickly so that robs you of spin and also robs you of power as well. Uh, so again, uh, would definitely want you to video your serve and, and you should look at it and you might catch some, some more issues on there if you haven't videoed it before. And in terms of choosing, uh, whether to practice a slice or kick serve, I've asked this question, uh, to a number of my guests and lately I've been hearing a lot that you want to practice your slice serve more often because that's usually easier for players to hit rather than the kick serve. So uh, I would suggest that, but you know, just test them both and see what works more natural or feels more natural to you and work on that because if you can have a consistent second serve, then you will not really have these issues and you can even use your second serve uh, as your first serve if, uh, if, it, if needed or if it'll work in terms of your strategic goals and aims. So uh, one other thing is I highly, highly recommend that you listen to my very recent podcast interview with James Ludlow from Online Tennis Instruction, episode 210. So just go to tennisfiles.com slash 210 for a deep dive on serve technique. And this link is also on the show notes page in your podcast app of choice or on my website. Uh, again, tennisfiles.com slash 210 is the website, which has the audio file, the show notes, links, and all that jazz. All right. 
The second question is actually from a real person. Just kidding. Uh, so was the first one. This one is from Sharon, who is a 3.0 player, and she has trouble with recognizing where and how her opponent will be making the shot. So I guess I kind of modified this question when I read it, but basically trying to anticipate where the shot is going and how you know the quality of the shot is the question. So as soon as I saw this question, I remembered the tennis summit session that Faisal Hassan did for uh, for us, which was fantastic. And it was about watching the ball, but there was also a segment on it about scanning the opponent when the ball is traveling away from you, because that's what you should be doing. When the ball is traveling toward you, you're paying attention to the ball, but when it's going away from you, you're not paying attention to the ball so much as you're paying attention to the opponent. So you want to scan the opponent. And when you do this, remember the four P's, Sharon and whoever else is listening, Uh, a lot of people. And the four P's are postures, position, preparation, and patterns. So first off, you want to pay attention to the posture of your opponent. So in particular, what is your the balance of your opponent? Is your opponent leaning forward, leaning back, leaning toward you know to the side? Because that can indicate whether you're going to receive an offensive or defensive shot, and even you know the direction of the shot as well. And uh, as well with postures, um, you do want to pay attention to um, the strike zone. Actually, I have this in my notes within postures, although I don't know if you want to that necessarily goes in with it. But uh, actually, yeah, I think it does because when we think about the strike zone, you know, we think about like, w- is the ball in in a low position relative to your your uh, your body or is it, you know, at hip height? Is it very high? And this is very important too because uh, oftentimes, you know, if the ball is very low, uh, you're, you're definitely not going to get too much of an offensive shot towards you. And in, in a lot of cases, especially if the, the opponent is like close to the net and the ball is low, a lot of times they're going to hit it cross court just because the net is lower. At least that's what, you know, the percentage play is. And uh, yeah, so that, that's a very important uh, first P. And then the second one is positioning because you want to see where your opponent is uh, in relation to the court. Is the opponent inside the court? Uh, you know, if you're in, if the opponent's inside the court and they have the ball in their ideal contact zone, then you're probably in for a world of hurt <laughs> and you have to split step and anticipate and just, you know, guess. Well, we'll talk about, you know, patterns later, which can help you guess uh, more, uh, give you a more educated guess. And yeah, like, you know, if the opponent is on one end of the court, then you should probably be positioning yourself in uh on the other end, so that you can cut off the angles as well as possible. Obviously, if you know your opponent is all the way on the left side, and then you go on the left side, then you are screwed. <laughs> so you do want to pay attention overall to your opponent's positioning, and then pay attention to your opponent's preparation. So, how is the opponent setting up to hit the shot? Do they have a lot of time? Are they are their feet set? Um, you know, how is their balance, which you talked about a little bit, how much are they rotating on their shot? If they are rotating a lot, then you're going to expect a bigger and more powerful shot. And then patterns is the last P is, um, the 
mental, physical, technical, and tactical trends and tendencies of your opponent. So you do really want to pay attention when you're playing as to where they hit certain shots in certain situations. I mean, even in the warm-up, you know, give them certain balls and see where they hit it. Uh, you know, for example, where are they hitting their forehand on the run? Is there some sort of consistency with that? Where do they keep returning their backhand return? Uh, there's also certain things like times where you can tell where a person is definitely going to hit a ball or most likely to hit a shot. You know, like if, if you serve into their body, it's going to be pretty hard for them to hit, you know, a, a winner down the line. In most cases, you might might expect shot in the middle or across court, you know, especially when you're playing doubles, you can pick that off. But yeah, overall, uh, just keep these things in mind, uh, Sharon, postures, positioning, preparation, and patterns, and you will definitely be able to anticipate your opponent's direction of shot a lot better. So I hope that helped. Third question here is from Howard, a 2.5, so more on the uh, beginner scale, which is cool. And the questions, which I'll paraphrase again, uh, is about deciding whether to hit a forehand or a backhand when you just have, when you don't have much time. And then also a question about running to and hitting the ball without losing your balance after hitting the ball. So as to your first question, I mean, you know, in, in general, you, you have to try to figure out which direction is the ball traveling and that's going to dictate, you know, where your forehand whether to hit a forehand or backhand, and you'll just get used to judging the ball's direction, spin and speed as you play more tennis. Um, but, you know, perhaps your question is more directed toward those balls that are coming pretty much to the middle of your body. And in that case, most of the times you want to hit a backhand. Um, this applies both for volleys and ground strokes. Um, I mean, if you even just test it out yourself, which I kind of just did, you know, a little bit before this episode, I mean, your wrist is just going to be in a much more comfortable of a position uh, hitting a backhand rather than a forehand. You know, it's extremely awkward to, to bend your wrist, um, you know, out uh, like that for the forehand. So uh, that's the shot you generally want to hit. And also then you'll be able to hit either a slice or an abbreviated uh, backhand, you know, not, not much of a swing uh, of a backswing, obviously. Especially with the one-hander, it's a little bit easier uh, to hit both. Uh, Two-hander is still doable. But yeah, that's, that's kind of my short answer for your first part of your question, Howard. Second part is staying balanced uh, when you're hitting a running forehand or backhand. So for this one, I would highly encourage you to perform more unilateral exercises because, well, unilateral basically means like, when you're doing an exercise, you're mainly using one side or the other. So let's say I'm doing Bulgarian split squats, um, mostly on, on just one leg or the other, while the other one is propped up on the bench. Uh, or I guess, you know, like one-legged squats, you, you know, you're just on one leg while the other leg is lifted. But the particular exercise that you should focus on, Howard, are lateral hops, where you uh, you land on one foot and then you stay balanced for a second or two and then you hop to the other side. So say like, you know, maybe you're in, just stand like basically on one line of the alley and then do a lateral hop to the side and then try to balance yourself and then go back to the other side. Uh, so 
Yeah, that's that's a really good one. Just Google lateral hops in case you're having trouble um, visualizing what I'm talking about. And uh, just pay attention to your footwork as well. You know, thinking about when I hit running uh, shots, I end up planting my outside leg and foot, obviously, after hitting the ball. And then I'll also use that same leg to push back uh, in the other direction when I'm recovering from the shot. So when you're planting your outside leg like that, then you're providing a stable base and you will definitely have more balance. But yeah, I mean, doing these unilateral leg exercises uh, will be really key, in particular those lateral hops. So definitely do that. Okay, so question number four uh, is from Kay, a 3.5, and she basically is just asking, uh, he or she is asking for more quality and realistic drills. So that's obviously a broad question. So I would choose the drills based on what you need to work on. Uh, If I just want to generalize, I think that there's been a severe lack of practice on the serve and return. Uh, I think about Craig O'Shaughnessy, one of the biggest strategists in the game. And, you know, he studied and I, you know, I forget the exact percentage, but it's like 70 to 80% of the points end in four shots or less. So that obviously means that you need to be working on your serve and return. Uh, if you don't outright win it on those shots, you're obviously setting up, you know, the next shots with those shots. So you can do simple drills like hitting an out wide serve and hitting to the other corner and playing out the point, things like that. Um, but you do really want to figure out, you know, like, are you training for singles? Are you training for doubles? You know, a really fun drill that, that I like to do in particular for doubles is simply just playing out games, um, but you're only playing out cross court and you, you get the alley as well. Because that's, that's pretty realistic with, with uh, doubles because it obviously helps you to train how to uh, keep the ball cross court and kind of avoid hitting it to the, the net player. But I do also like uh, what Jorge Capistani, who um, was on my summits and has been on the podcast, he talks about pressure drills. And so a big eye-opening fact and I uh, don't have the exact numbers but you know we're playing a very small percentage of our practices on actual like pressure uh, situations and the same goes for matches too right like you're a lot of them are just like you know one zero one all whatever and it's really you know then when you get to these four all five all six all situations you've been in those situations so rarely whether in practice or matches that you don't, you know, you're not very comfortable. So there are some great pressure drills that Jorge has talked about. And one of them is play a set, but you start each game from 30 all and you play out the set. So this obviously, uh, you know, (laughs) you just need two points to win the game or obviously, you know, this go to deuces and such, but um, that introduces immediate pressure because, you know, just percentage wise, if you win the first point, then it's, you're much more likely to win the game. Uh, another way to do it is to start playing sets from four all. That right there uh, introduces pressure right away. Kind of the same concept as the 30 all. And then also closeout sets. This is a really uh, great one too, which, is, which means that if you reach game point and you lose, you go back to zero. So let's say I'm, you know, it's 30 all, I win the point, I'm at 40-30. And then, uh, you know, now all of a sudden, I know that if I don't win this point, then I'm going to reset to love 30. So uh, that's, that's a great game as well. Another just, uh, yeah, another game that I like is a game that I play a lot with 
Will Hamilton, my friend from Fuzzy Yellow Balls, lives nearby, which is Tug of War. So this is where you just drop feed and you play a baseline game. However, you start at five all and you decide. So one player, they want to get to 10 and the other player goes to wants to get to zero. And the way it works is, let's say the player A, their goal is zero, right? So from five all, whenever they win a point, then the number goes down. Conversely, with player B, their goal is to get to 10. And for them, whenever they win a point, then it'll go up. So let's say it's five all, player A wins two points, and then now the score is three. It's just one number, three. Now now from three, player B wins four points in a row. Now it's seven. And then obviously, you know, back and forth, back and forth. So this game can take a long time. I think with Will, one time it took like 30 or 40 minutes. And also one other thing you can do is attach accountability to these games. So something like, you know, you've got to do 30 push-ups or something. If you lose these games, um, that could be great as well. But yeah, just to summarize, definitely work on your server and return a lot. You know, do some of these pressure drills, these cross-court sets and games, tug of war. See, what else could you do? Um, Yeah, you know, there's some other standard stuff like your figure eight drills, which are, are pretty good for especially for endurance purposes. Uh, although, you know, as I just said, like first four shots are key. But figure eight is where uh, one person hits cross court, one person hits down the line. So that definitely tests your your movement quite a bit. Um, but yeah, I hope that helps in regarding drills. And, you know, if you need more, just email me. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Number five, question number five is from Amy, a 2.5. And she says, my biggest issue is understanding where to stand and how to move playing doubles. So, you know, I I assume that you probably know the basic positions, you know, as a returner and server's partner, you know, standing at the net and so forth. One thing I would add is that, you know, on on first serves, I, I do like to stand a little bit further up as the net player usually uh or conversely uh with my when my uh, partner is returning if they're returning a second serve i like to move up a little bit more but yeah in terms of movement if the if your partner is stretched wide uh i would just say and this is a mistake i actually made you know before i learned doubles principles if your partner is stretched wide, you generally want to move in that direction as well. And the reasoning is that you don't want to leave a gaping hole in the middle for your opponents to hit to. So say if you know your opponent hits cross-court to your partner who is in the ad 
side, and that is a very wide shot. You know, if you just stay where you normally are, you know, and the the opponents are they close the net. Now they can just volley back behind your partner into the middle, or you know, the huge portion that's open, and then you're in bad shape. So instead, you do want to close that off and and you know, kind of restore the the distance between you and your partner. Generally, uh, is a good idea. And also, you do want to look for opportunities to move to move forward when your opponents are on the defense. You know, as we talked about with the uh, trying to think whose question that was with Sharon's question about like recognizing where the ball is going. Uh, if your opponent's on their back foot, they're running for a wide ball. That's when you usually want to be looking for opportunities to move forward and uh, potentially poach and just uh, buy the ball into the open court or at the your opponent uh, your opponent's feet, something like that. And just in general, you're really gonna stand above the crowd, especially at the two point two point five level, if you do this, uh, and first is the opposite lesson, I guess, which is most net players stand still or they don't move enough to cause any issues for their opponents. I mean, simply the act of just moving, as and we'll talk about how to move in a second, that will you know cause some more anxiety for your opponents and kind of keep them guessing as to where you might be going. So uh, just doing that alone will help so much and cause errors. So a little more advanced concept is called the movement tennis triangle uh sorry the movement triangle and uh, if you google the movement triangle and then maybe if you can't find it google movement triangle tennis uh that's uh, then that will um show you a great video on that and that's from my friend Greg Lasser at online tennis instruction and so this triangle, I mean, I'll try to describe it here, but, you know, I think you should check it out and I'll actually, I'll, I'll remember to put in a link to it in the show notes. And basically, you should constantly be moving in and out of three positions. You know, first you have your home base, which is more in the, you know, the middle of the service box and kind of back more towards the service line, maybe a couple of feet up from there. Uh, and that's when your partner is first hitting the ball. And then when the ball travels to your opponent's side, then you want to start to move up and kind of in a wider position towards the alley when the ball is traveling cross court. And then, you know, the third part of the triangle is when your opponent is hitting the ball, you then want to move back towards the middle of the court and even further into the court. And for the reason for that is you want to try and pick off the shot that uh, that your opponent is hitting. So, you know, I think that you can even execute this the 2-5 level and you will be really be giving your opponents a ton of trouble. But, uh, you know, first of all, you know, just practice those basic things that I mentioned earlier. And, you know, for, you know, once you get those down, then you can practice this movement triangle, which is really effective. Because if you think about it, you know, you're, you're at first you're, you're tracking the ball kind of going wide and then you're, you're, the visual when your opponent hits the ball on the other side is that, you know, you're covering more of the, the your own side. And then all of a sudden when they hit it, then you're moving towards the middle and up. And then you can really pick off those shots and, and cause some issues. So I really like this movement triangle and you should check that out. All right. Number six, uh, another anonymous question. Should we give this person a name? Hmm, I'll name this person 
Kendra for fun. All right, 4-0, Kendra. Uh, and the question is explosivity into the corners. I guess that's not even a question, but the, you know, the request, I guess, is how can I become more explosive into the corners? And the answer is that you do want to work on your first step explosivity. And I was just talking with this, uh, about this with my friend who I par- uh, practiced with the other day. And essentially, uh, you know, you have different movements that you're going to use depending on how far the ball is from you. But if you're wor- talking about the corners, you're basically split stepping and then performing a sprint. So work on your first step explosivity and practice these sprints to the corners. So, I mean, I would say, you know, just make it really tennis specific, go on the court, split step from the middle, first no racket, split step, and then sprint to the corner and then recover back to the middle and then do that on the other side and then do that maybe three to four times at first uh, just to to ensure that you're working on pure explosivity, uh, if that's a word. And then, you know, later on, you know, once you get used to those amount of reps, you can increase it a little bit. But, uh, you know, again, that's low reps for speed. And then, you know, uh, get your racket and then do the same thing now and then perform shadow swings when you get to the corner and make sure that your your footwork and uh, planting your outside foot and then uh, pushing back off of it to recover is all there. And then you can also have someone hand feed you balls. Um, they're standing on your side, uh, maybe at the, the, the service line in the middle or a little, you know, a couple of feet uh, uh, over that. And then they're throwing balls to each side and maybe they just throw it at random. So that's fantastic. You can get anyone to do that. They don't have to be a tennis player. So yeah, I, I would do that. I would just work on, on the movement on the court, um, the sprints, and you will then be much better of an explosive person into the corners of the tennis court. Question number seven from Ted, a 4-0. Ted says, I play tennis five days a week and I practice once a week on the ball machine and I feel like I'm not getting any better. I'm an average 4-0 doubles player. So most likely you aren't practicing the right things that you need to work on. And so obviously, I don't know exactly what you're doing, uh, how you're practicing or playing on these five days, uh, you know, a week and, and on the ball machine. But I would say, you know, regardless of the structure, you need to set an intention of something to work on each time you go out on the court. So I would, I would figure out what do I need to work on that will give me the most return on investment in my game and help push it forward into, you know, four or five territory and so on. And then commit to working on it when you play. And that's where the, you know, setting the intention comes in. Doing that, you know, like I said, when you play and also uh, when you're working on the, on the ball machine as well. You know, if I were to guess, and again, this could be, you know, inaccurate for you, Ted, but, you know, if I were to guess, I would say you're probably just going out and playing a bunch of practice sets, you know, with your friends or even matches. And you're not really having like, you know, any any particular goals or or maybe you do have some but maybe they're not the right things that would help you because you know you when if you just go out there and play these matches and just hit countless balls you will probably improve your timing and your consistency but the biggest gains that can be made with strategic adjustments or technical changes or a change in mindset or fitness are not being made 
Uh, and these are the things that you really want to change in your game, and, and you have to intentionally work on them because they're changes. So they're not going to be natural in the beginning. So I would basically start by videotaping myself. Uh, I actually just got an action camera, which is going to be helpful. Um, but you can, you know, videotape yourself by just like putting your phone on a tripod or getting like one of those mounts, like the QM1 mount, and then mounting your phone or an action camera to it and tape, you know, a few points or the whole set if you can, or two sets, etc. And then you can, you'll, you'll probably see some, some areas that you would need to work on. And, uh, you know, when you are practicing with your friends or whoever it is, perhaps you can insert some drilling into the mix, such as the ones that I mentioned earlier in the podcast, you know, playing doubles from uh, with 30 all or from four all rather than just playing, you know, the sets or whatever you're doing. And even just telling that your partners that may just be really good for you all in terms of like the mindset of like saying, okay, you know, today we're actually going to be working on stuff instead of just playing. So again, I made a lot of assumptions and you know what that does, that saying, I can't say it, you know, this is uh, PG material here, but yes, I hope that helped. And let's move on to question eight with Dave, a 4.0 player. And the question is about consistency on my two-handed backhand. Although I've beaten 4.0 players, my comfort level with the backhand is a fraction of what I have on the forehand side. I've talked to several coaches to get tips, but none has been able to get me to develop comfort with the stroke. So first off, you know, we've definitely got to be, we've got to practice hitting more backhands. And uh, one thing in particular that I found was very helpful for me is to hit more left-handed or non-dominant handed forehand. So obviously if you're a righty, you hit left-handed forehands. If you're a lefty, you hit right-handed forehands. Because the common issue, and again, I speak from experience, is not using enough of the non-dominant hand on the stroke. Generally, the players are, are using their dominant hand uh, way too much, and this doesn't allow for enough extension and control. I mean, you see some of the nicest two-handed backhands. I mean, there are some exceptions, but for the most part, you know, they have a great command of their non-dominant hand and that allows them to hit more angles and more spin and everything. And, you know, I tell you again from experience, like once I uh, was able to use more of my left hand, I was able to produce more spin and extension on my shot and so forth. So uh, other things to think about with your backhand, uh, it's common to the forehand, but sometimes we just don't have the same exact principles executed on our, our on one side as the other. But with your unit turn, you want to make sure that you're leading with your hips and your shoulders uh, rather than just your arms. And especially on the two-handed backhand, you know, a lot of us tend to just like uh, shove our two, two arms like back immediately instead of uh, using our whole body or kinetic chain. And then also we want to make sure we're loading the back leg enough. And then we want to also let the hips and shoulders lead the uncoiling. And also keep your arms loose. Uh, a lot of times they're too tight. I recognize on my own two-handed backhand that my arms were a lot tighter than on my forehand. And then you also do want to make sure that when possible, you want to step forward into the shot and just perform a lot of shadow swings at home. You know, in, in this case, the more backhands you hit, the more uh, confident you are going to be with the shot. 
And even just shadow swings are great to, to practice what I just talked about in terms of the technique. And you can even get a tool like Topspin Pro, which um, the fine folks over there just sent one to me, well, uh, a little while ago, and that's that's a fantastic tool, and I'll have a link to it in the show notes page. And there's also the the iCoach as well. So those are great tools to, to practice even more, like you're actually, you are striking a ball with those tools. And then actually, yeah, that's pretty much it. So just hopefully implement these tips that I mentioned and you'll get more comfortable. And it's also a mindset thing too. I remember a lot of it was was just me being very unconfident or not confident with my backhand. And then I just put more reps in and then I kind of got more confident because I was practicing it and then it became better. So hope that helps with you, Dave, uh, with your two-handed backhand. Last question. My throat is getting a little dry, but uh, I'm not even pausing for water here. I just want to want to get it all done. So Terry, a four or five. And the question slash comment is, right now, my biggest issue is the pain associated with my left knee, which flared up about three months ago during a tournament. Prior to this, I was a good mover, ball retriever, and counterpuncher. I'm 64 years old now, and I do not know if I can get my knee back. Technique-wise, I've improved my one-handed backhand and serve by watching and listening to YouTube online tennis videos from many coaches and experts like you, Terry, or five. Thank you, Terry, for the for supporting and, and watching me and the other coaches. Yeah, so we'll focus on the the knee issue. Uh, I mean, there's some obvious things here, which you know, a lot of times it bears repeating because we don't follow the obvious advice. But you definitely want to rest for a a substantial period of time, and then you want to see some experts, see a physical therapist. Uh, one other thing I can recommend too, uh, once you're feeling better, is to see a racket fit certified expert because they can assess your strengths and weaknesses from a physical standpoint. So they're really great um, in, in assessing your limit, your body's limitations, and then being able to adjust your technique, you know, based on that. You know, for example, like. Sometimes we'll say, you know, on your your uh, backhand or forehand, you want to rotate, you know, X amount. But if we recognize physical limitations with, with your lower body, then, you know, maybe we'll just um, not emphasize that so much, but you can still execute, you know, a, a good shot. So, but once you're feeling better, uh, you do want to pay attention to a few things. And one of them is your it's uh, strength imbalances because I've had this issue. I was just talking with my friend about this recently, uh, how you know you get injured in one part of the body and then another part of it compensates for you and then soon that part is hurting. So for me, I had like a knee issue, kind of like you, Terry, and then I still continued to play and then you know my hip, uh, I got pain in my hip because that part of my body was compensating. And so uh, you just want to try to assess, you know, where are these strength imbalances and then try to strengthen that, those areas of your body. And then also you definitely want to make sure you put a lot of time towards recovery and maintenance. I mean, how much are you stretching? How much are you foam rolling? The myofascial release is really effective towards helping your body, you know, recover and feel better and reduce pain and all that uh, and tightness, you know. Just, you know, over tightness of your body can cause a lot of issues as well and pain. So I hope that those uh, those thoughts help. You know, obviously I'm not like a physical therapist or a doctor or anything. So you do want to consult these medical experts. But um, those are some some thoughts. 
and a disclaimer as well. So be careful out there. All right. Well, those are the nine questions and answers that I promised. So I really do hope that they helped. And uh, you know, feel free to email me if you have any other questions. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do leave a review for the show, especially on Apple Podcasts. That would help the show a lot and bring it up the rankings and then have more people find it. So that would be great. But obviously, you know, if you don't have Apple Podcasts, and uh, you can leave a review on the podcast app of your choice. And as I mentioned, the links will be in uh, on the show notes page, in, on, I don't know, everything, whatever. <laughs> um, but you can check it out, uh, including the link to my Serve Technique Masterclass episode with James Ludlow and the Top Spin Pro and Greg's video on the movement triangle. And I do want to leave you with a quote as I often do at the end of the show. And this one is by Rosa Parks. And Rosa said, I have learned over the years that when one's mind is made up, this diminishes fear. Knowing what must be done does away with fear. I love that quote. Very transferable to tennis and in life and everything else. Uh, let's see. What else do we have? I'm trying to think of a, a good pun to say on the podcast. I should have prepared. All right, we'll go with one. Uh, my friend asked me what time I wanted to play, and I told him, how about tennis?" All right, I hope you don't shut off the podcast immediately after hearing that, even though it's pretty much the end of the episode. But I think I will be saying more, more and better puns on the show just, just for fun, because I like puns. I uh, love dad jokes. Uh, so there you go. Something else new about me if you didn't know. All right, well, I hope you all have a great day and week, and we've got some fantastic episodes lined up for you. Uh, we actually have a really insightful interview with Christopher Clary coming up next. Uh, he just wrote a, very, uh, a, a new book on F uh, Roger Federer, and it's so detailed, and it was really great that um, him and his publisher sent me a, an advanced copy so that I could read it and be prepared for the interview and uh, really have enjoyed it. It's a fantastic book. So definitely tune in to next week, uh, next week's episode, and we'll have the link for the book and, and, you know, a lot of great stories in there in the podcast episode as well as obviously the book. Uh, all right. Well, that's all for me. I hope you have a great I think I said this already, but I hope you have a, a great day and keep improving your tennis game. We'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. This is Mirabon signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files Podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.